And you know, it's really fitting as well this morning for us to be able to thank these high school uh, students, these senior students for uh, their ministry here at the Bible Church and for their life and all that they've learned up to this point, because it really dovetails off on the message that I want to present this morning from Mark chapter 8. And if you have your Bibles handy, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 8, specifically in verses 1 to 21. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. I say that it dovetails quite nicely because you could title the message as I have this morning, Beware, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Or maybe we could subtitle it, Is Your Worldview Worldly? Because that's really the heart of the message that Jesus is bringing to us here in the text of Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. It's really a message about what our worldview is all about. We live in a culture, as you very well know, that is pluralistic. What I mean by the word pluralism is a culture that sees no one system of beliefs, no ultimate view of reality such as Christianity as answering all of the issues of life. That's pluralism. Pluralism says that everyone should have an equal opportunity to believe whatever they wish with no one group having their own day in the sun. Or to put it another way, as so many have, and rightly so, our culture is very relativistic. That is, that all truth is relative. Whatever one individual believes is true is, therefore, true simply because that individual believes it to be true. And certainly no one group, like Christianity, has the corner on truth. You don't have to go too far at all whether it's the media or general conversations with people in our world, to understand that everyone believes that everyone is right simply because they hold the position that they're right. And certainly the worst thing anybody could ever do is to tell someone else that their view of the world, their religion, their philosophy of life is not true. Everyone is ultimately right, no matter how incoherent or illogical their system may be internally. In fact, there is a, a newer word, it's actually a very old word, but it's a newer word to us that's becoming much more popular to describe all of this in our culture, and it's the word monism. Monism, M-O-N-I-S-N. It really is coming, of course, from the Greek word mono or mono, which means one or only. And it's a view, a philosophy, which says that all reality, whether that be physical or material or spiritual or social, is one unified whole. Hence, the idea of everything being one. All religions, every group purporting any kind of truth, can be combined, they say, and fitted together in our world to form a united system of understanding, of understanding truth, of understanding life. Monism. Here's the mantra of the monists. All is one, and one is all. 
And that is largely what paganism is in our country and even around our world. Paganism says, monism says, all is one and one is all. We all have the truth. Uh, we're simply trotting on a different path to that ultimate reality. We're all going to arrive. We're all going to be there. We're just simply taking different roads, different paths. But it's all the same reality. It's all the same truth. And someone may serve Jesus Christ. Someone may serve Buddha. Someone may serve uh, Muhammad. Uh, whatever you serve or whomever you serve, we're all going to arrive at the same place. We're all going to be there. That's the monist mantra. That's what they believe. And that's their world view. Now listen, we all know that everyone has a world view. Everyone has a view of reality. Even if that view is very undefined or ill-defined, everyone believes something about something. The question is, what do we believe? What is our world view? Is our worldview worldly? Is it the stuff of the world? Or as believers in Jesus Christ, is our worldview matched with the prevailing truth of the Word of God? And that's really, I think, the essence of, Ma of Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. Each of us speak of the truth. We claim that we have the truth. We claim that we know the truth believe the truth, and live the truth. The question is, does that truth line up with the truth of the living and abiding Word of God? Watch out for anyone who says they represent the truth, but in reality do not square it with the eternal Word of truth, the Word of God. And really, the essence of this particular passage of Scripture is Jesus Christ saying to his disciples, watch out, beware. There are those who purport that they're living and speaking and teaching the truth, when in reality they are not. You see, this monism of our day, this relativism, this pluralism, is not really any different than that which Jesus experienced in his own day. Oh, it may have different terms, it may have different faces, it may have uh, different ways of defining such a thing, but it is really all the same. And so, this particular passage in Mark 8 is really, really very, very relevant to us. Why don't we read this text as the setting for our morning. Verse 1 says, In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. And they also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. 
and they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? When I read this passage, there's, of course, one verse that leaps out at me. I don't know if that's true of you, but it's verse 15. And he was giving orders to them. He was warning them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Mark clearly was telling us that Jesus was explicitly saying to his disciples, giving them orders, warning them, saying, watch out, beware. You must know what is out there, disciples, so that you will not be deceived. And that's why I say, this is a perfect text for us in our own day. The warning that we also need to heed and to hear is, watch out, beware. Beware of the leaven of the world. Or to put it another way, beware that your worldview is not worldly. Be careful what you believe. Be careful what you hear. Be careful what your eyes see. We could immediately apply such a thing. We could say, beware of Star Wars. Oh, it may be entertaining, but it also has a message, doesn't it? The message of Eastern mysticism, the message of the force and the dark side, the message of the world. How worldly is our worldview? Jesus simply didn't teach the truth. He wanted them to know the error. It's not enough just to know the truth. It's also important for all of us to discern where the error is, because error is often mixed with truth. And this, my friends, is a wonderful, applicable text for all of us this morning. The outline of this passage is so very, very simple and straightforward. Number one, we see in verses 1 to 10 the context 
of the command of Christ to beware. The context of the command of Christ to beware. And the context, of course, is the feeding of the 4,000. Secondly, we're going to see the command of Christ concerning the Pharisees. That's that statement in verse 15, contained within verses 11 to 15. Beware of their leaven. That's his command. Watch out. Be vigilant. Be careful. Watch out of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That's his command. And then thirdly, we're going to see the concern of Christ about his own disciples and their hardness of heart. That's in verses 16 to 21. Now, what's the context of the command of Christ here in verses 1 to 10? Well, it's the feeding of the 4,000. You will remember that earlier in Mark's gospel, in chapter 6, verses 33 to 44, we led you to an understanding of what was going on when Jesus fed the 5,000. And now he comes again to the place where those who are with him are hungry. They need to be fed, and they haven't eaten for three days. He knows that if he doesn't reach out to meet their need, they will remain hungry. And some of them, he says, have even traveled a long distance to hear Christ preach. And he knows that if some of them attempt to travel back home, they'll faint on the way. And that's why he responds by telling his disciples in verses 2 and 3, I have compassion for the people because they've remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. By the way, that really communicates volumes to me about at least some in that crowd who desired to hear the person of Christ and what he taught. I wonder how many of us would go without food for three days to follow those that we really knew were teachers of the Word of God, even if it meant we were potentially going to faint on the way back home. This is a marvelous text, and it's frankly quite different from the earlier text in Mark 6 about the feeding of the 5,000. Oh, there are, of course, some similarities, but there are some obvious differences as well. These are not the same two, uh, these two occurrences are not the same event. They're very different. Now, you might read some commentators and be able to read some books on the subject and you would see them say that these are one and the same. They're not. They're very different. For instance, in chapter 6, verse 35, the crowd only stays one day. Here in verse 2 of chapter 8, it says they stayed three days. Even the number of the loaves and the number of the fishes, as well as the fragments that were left, are different. Even the number of people are different. One, it's 5,000, and the account here is 4,000. Another difference is the concern of Jesus himself. In the first account, he was concerned for their need of teaching. In this account, he has already been teaching them for three days, and now he's concerned for their physical well-being. Another difference is the earlier, earlier crowd in chapter 6 was predominantly a Jewish crowd. This is predominantly a Gentile crowd. And even if we didn't understand all of those things, what I read to you this morning should answer the entire question. When Jesus questioned the disciples themselves in verses 19 and 20, he obviously is referring to two different events. And so, the context of what Jesus really wants 
to bring across to the disciples is his own miraculous ministry of feeding these 4,000 people. But there's a lot more that's going on here. A lot more. In fact, when we move to the command of Christ concerning the Pharisees in verse 11, we read this. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. In other words, the whole point of this passage is we move quickly from the miracle, only a few verses describe it. We move quickly from that to the point of the passage, and that is this, there is a debate that is raging. And that debate is between Jesus himself and the Pharisees right here. They are no doubt a part of this crowd. They were a part of the crowd of the 5,000 who were fed, and they're a part of this crowd. And instead of basking in the glory of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who has done this miraculous work that no mere man could do, instead of all of that, the Pharisees are arguing with Christ, testing Him, tempting Him, or at least attempting to do so. You say, what's going on here? Mark 1, Mark 8, 11 only says that they came out and began to argue with him. It doesn't really say what's going on. Well, we have to turn over to Matthew's gospel for that, and I want you to do that in Matthew chapter 16 because this is a fascinating, fascinating account of what the debate, what the argument is all about. This helps us fill in the gaps. In chapter 16, verse 1, it says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven, which is incredible for me to think of, because what did Jesus just do? And what did he do with the 5,000? He gave them a sign from heaven because he miraculously turned the small loaves and fishes into a full meal that fed thousands of people. And no sooner having done that than they come to him and say, give us a sign from heaven. And because he knows their hearts, and because he knows they're attempting to trap him, he replied to them, verse 2, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky? but cannot discern the signs of the times? You know what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, listen, if you can't discern the scenes in the natural world, like predicting the weather in the sky, how can you discern the spiritual issues of life? And notice what he does. He doesn't even affirm that they're good weathermen. Because he says when it is evening, you say it's going to be fair weather for the sky is red. And yet in the morning, the sky is red and threatening and you say there'll be a storm today. Heard any weathermen say that? They can't even tell the weather. They can't even be the prognosticators of the natural realm. How do we trust them for the spiritual dimension? He says, look, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Of course, you know what he was doing. He was saying, they're 
will be one sign, one major sign that no one is supposed to miss, and that is my resurrection from the dead. And of course, they missed it. They missed it. The text really doesn't tell us what kind of sign they wanted, but it's apparent that their hatred of Christ is becoming so much more intense. I like what D. Edmund Hebert says. He writes, They wanted some startling celestial phenomenon, some audible or visible sign in the sky, which incontrovertibly establishes his claim. Their demand was demonstration of their spiritual blindness. They failed to recognize the messianic signs already being given while demanding a sign of their own choosing. You see, that was really the issue. The issue was, yes, we acknowledge that no mere man could do some of the things that you are doing, but it isn't the way we want it. It isn't the way we believe it should be done. And so they just pick all kinds of things to try to test him, to try to question him. You know what this is all about? They thought they had him trapped. You say, how so? Well, if he tried to bring a celestial sign right before their very eyes, they thought, that's going to fail. But if he refused, they thought the people who are looking for signs will then disbelieve him and they'll come back to their allegiance to us. They thought they could test him so easily. Of course, they didn't know who they were really, really arguing with. He might lose some support with some of the people if he doesn't perform all of the miracles that they choose, including the Pharisees, but Jesus isn't going to be roped in to this situation. He does what he wants, when he wants it, in the way he wants it, because it's the perfect fulfillment of the will of God the Father. He's not going to be seduced into some issue that some mere men are going to try to trap him with. Notice Jesus' response in verse 12, sighing deeply in his spirit. He said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. I want you to focus in on that little phrase, sighing deeply in his spirit. Literally, it says he was groaning upwardly. Groaning upwardly. Which means that his groaning was so deep, so deep within his bowels, that his groaning went all the way from that deep place all the way up. Which means that he was very, very grieved. You say, what was he grieved about? He was grieved about their unbelief. He was grieved about their unbelief. They would attack and attack and attack and attack, and he was grieved because he just performed another wonderful, graceful miracle of feeding 4,000 people at one time. What's the proper response to something like that? It's worship. It's praise. It's wonder that the Son of God has arrived. I mean, wouldn't all of these Jews, would, wouldn't they want to say the Messiah has come? But these Jews, they're unbelieving. And because they try to trap him, it says that Jesus was groaning deep within his soul. 
I want you to notice something else. While he's groaning deeply, sighing deeply in his spirit in this verse, he has compassion on the people, according to chapter 8, verse 2. And what I want to focus in on this morning is the beautiful balance of the God-man. You say, what is that balance? The balance is this. Having this tremendous compassion and love and grace and mercy in his heart for those who desperately need it and a groaning and a grieving and a sorrow and a righteous anger for those who are unbelieving. That, my friends, is a very delicate balance, is it not? How many of us would say that we are striving ever so more clearly to the balance between a deep compassion on the people who we know are in need and who are desperate for growth and those who are unbelieving and wicked and sinful who deserve nothing but our sorrow and our grief and even our anger. Do you become angry when you see something on television, movies, hear people blaspheme the name of Christ, when you hear Christ's name dragged through the mud, when you hear God's name taken in vain, when you see the wickedness of our world, massive abortions, euthanasia, physicians-assisted suicide, all kinds of wickedness and sin, babies being dashed and killed and maimed at birth just because we don't want them around. Do you become angry at that? I don't know about you, but there are sort of tinges, moments, however slight in my sinful humanness, that I become angry at such a thing. And it's probably only one one millionth of the purity of thought that Christ had when it says that he groaned deeply within his spirit about the unbelief of the Pharisees. On the other hand, do we reach out with compassion and love and mercy and grace to those that we know desperately need it? Do we have the balance right, the balance of truth and love? That's really what we're talking about this morning. It's the balance of truth and love. It's the balance of truth that says, that's an error. That's not true. That misrepresents my God. Jesus Christ isn't like that. And this is love. This is grace. This is mercy. Reaching out to people in need. You say, are the two positioned against each other? Not at all. When you have the balance like Christ is expressing here, you have the beautiful balance of truth love and love truth. That's why Paul is able to say in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. And that's why the psalmist can say righteousness and truth, righteousness and love have kissed each other. The beautiful balance, and all of us as Christians are called upon to have the delicate balance, the ever-growing ever-increasing, delicate balance of truth and love in our hearts. What is our worldview 
all about? Is it a worldly worldview that sees error as not as bad as it really is, as not as dangerous as it really is, and love in some syrupy fashion that really isn't love at all? You see, we're pelted with that stuff, aren't we? We are pelted. We are poked and prodded and pushed in every dimension to either kilter out of balance on the truth side or out of balance on the love side. We're constantly being told that the truth is relative, that we should be pluralistic, that we should be multicultural when we know that that's an error, that that's a lie. And yet at the same time, there are people and their needs that are going unaddressed. People who might even be around us, maybe even for three days or more. And our hearts, because we're wrapped up in our own stuff, we're wrapped up in our own thoughts, in our own world, in our own worldview, we're not seeing the needs of people around us. Well, Jesus had a tremendous compassion for the physical and spiritual needs of his people. And he also had a deep groaning against the wickedness, especially of the religious people of the day, because they were the ones who were supposed to be living out that delicate balance also, and they weren't doing it. Jesus wants them to know for sure that he's not going to be trapped into their sinful temptings. Look at verses 13 to 15. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. They, that is the disciples, had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In other words, the whole point of the feeding of the 4,000 was not just to meet their needs, but to come alongside his own disciples later on and say, I want you to know something. Take the analogy, take the metaphor of what I just did by feeding these people and beware that in the midst of feeding them the loaves, the bread, there's some leaven in it. And the leaven is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. It's the leaven of unbelief. Watch out. Disciples, beware. There are going to be people around you who are going to be constantly telling you that this can't happen. This is not true. And you're going to be forced to say, because you love the truth and you love people, this is not true, this is an error, this is a lie, and we must reach out to people in this way because this is the dispensing of God's mercy and grace. But beware, it's a fine balance. David Garland says, Jesus says that false prophets and false Christs will give signs and wonders to deceive, but Jesus will offer this generation no noisy sign from heaven, only the wind whistling through an empty tomb after his resurrection. He says, hey, there's just one more sign I'm going to give this grievous and wicked and sinful and adulterating generation, and that is this. I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised from the dead. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that, disciples? I mean, they were listening right to Jesus' words. And as Matthew records them, what would they be thinking? Jesus is going to rise from the dead, the sign of Jonah. All of this teaching that he's going to tell them, he's going to say later on in chapter 8, listen, I want you to know, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed, but he will rise again. Now what does he call on them to do, to respond with? And that is, believe. Believe in this message. Believe what I'm telling you. And the one thing he wants them to guard against is this, unbelief. Unbelief. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to suffer at the hands of, of Pilate and Herod. And I want you to know that you do not need to fear. Just believe in me. Look at all the miracles I'm doing. Look at who I am. Believe me for my word's sake and believe me for my work's sake. I am he. Do you believe this? Is this your conviction? Is this what you're all about, disciples? This is what I'm teaching you. And I want you to know that not everyone believes that. And here are the Pharisees, and here is Herod, and they don't believe that message. Watch out for them. They're like leaven. You say, well, what is this leaven? Well, it may be a little bit more familiar to us because it's yeast. Yeast. And in ancient times, they took this leaven or this yeast and what they would do is they would take a little portion of that from the bread that was not eaten that had that leaven in it. And because they didn't have a ready yeast available at the supermarket, they would take that yeast and they would try to store it safely away. And of course, because they had no refrigeration, they would take some juice that was fermented and they would take that juice and they would pour it into this yeast of bread and they would try to store this bread for safekeeping. And when it came time to bake more bread, they would take that little morsel out and they would knead it into the dough of the new bread. And hopefully that fermentation would have preserved that clump of dough. And if it did, that bread that would be baked would come out and it would be wonderful and beautiful and fresh and lovely to eat. But what would happen if it had become infected? because it had not been stored properly. You know what would happen to that yeast? It would become poisonous. And when that poisonous yeast, that leaven, would be kneaded into the new dough and the bread would then be baked, that bread would be poisoned. And so in that old world, that old ancient world, they had a saying, beware of the leaven. Beware. Beware of the yeast. Make sure that it's good. Make sure that it isn't poison. Do everything you can to make sure that this isn't the poison kind of yeast. You think this analogy would have come so very clear into the disciples' minds? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Men, it's poison. It's poison. And don't do what so many are doing and taking this poison leaven, this yeast, and kneading it into things that also are true so that when you do, you have truth mixed with error. Folks, truth is pure. It's 100% pure, and it needs to remain that way. You see, that's precisely why we must do everything we can not to be influenced by any kind of error whatsoever even the smallest amount, even the most small modicum of error. I have often had people say to me, why do you 
try to be so precise? Why do you try to go through every verse? Why do you try to go through every word? It's because of the precision of the truth of the Word of God so that no little error comes in. Someone once asked one of the Puritans, why are you so precise? And he said, because I serve a precise God. That's so true. We must beware, we must always be on the lookout for those who are purporting error. And they never purport error as error, they always purport error as truth. No one's ever dumb enough to say, listen, I want to teach you some error, listen to this. No, they say, this is truth, walk in it. And Jesus is telling his own disciples and he's telling us today, be careful, beware, be vigilant. Don't allow any of the leaven of the world, the leaven of worldliness, the leaven of your own worldview to poison you. Beloved, we can't allow our worldview to be shaped by the world because our world is a world of unbelief. Just read the paper. Just listen to the news commentary. Just talk to people. Our world is shaped by a world of unbelief. And if that weren't enough, if he were simply saying to his disciples, I want you to beware of those people outside, we'd say, nice message, pastor, thank you, end in prayer. But he says, I'm concerned even my disciples about you. Verse 16. As soon as he told them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, the spiritual realities of life. This is, what I want, this is what I want you to be aware of that's going on spiritually right around you. These are the spiritual issues of life. Here they are. Beware. Be vigilant. Verse 16. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. What? Oh, my goodness. The spiritual realities are what he's after, and what do they do? Does anybody have any bread? You know, we had all of those fragments, and now we're in the boat, and we don't even have one loaf. By the way, what's he talking about? What? He's talking about beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of Herod. What in the world is he talking about? Jesus, notice his omniscience, aware of this said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Why are, you, why are you so interested on the natural, physical? Don't focus on that. Do you not yet see or understand that you have a hardened heart? You have eyes but don't see and ears but don't hear. Do you not remember? Guys, fellas, how long have I been with you? You remember just a few short days ago? God, through His mighty word and mighty power, gave the 5,000 enough to eat and they were all satisfied? Guys, you're still thinking about the bread. And I'm telling you, if I can supply bread for thousands, 
We need to go beneath the natural or above the natural. We're talking about unbelief, men. Unbelief. And in essence, he says, I, I know what's going on. You're still unbelieving. Still hard of heart. Slow of mind. Eyes and ears that don't see or hear. And I have to say, guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. Think about the choices you make. Think about the thoughts you think. How many of us are immediately convicted by this? I am. You think a thought, you do an action, and you say, Lord, why did I do that? Why did I just do that? Why did I think that? That's not consistent with you. That's not consistent with your truth. That's wrong. Or Lord, why do I believe that? I now know that's not true. I need to give that up. No matter how traditional, no matter how habitual, no matter how seemingly right before, it's not right now, I need to stop. And I need your grace and your power to stop now. Yet, in so many ways, we could slam these disciples, but we're right there in that boat. Right there. We're like what Garland says, these disciples, slow on the uptake, grope for the answers in the dark, expecting nothing miraculous from Jesus. The disciples have also failed to discern the signs Jesus has shown them. The disciples' failure to grasp the significance of what Jesus has done in their midst becomes disturbingly obvious. Their dim-sightedness shows how much they still have to learn about their master. Jesus accuses them of having hardened hearts, blind eyes, dull hearing. They've moved no closer to comprehension and remain bamboozled by it all. And I say, that's Lance Quinn. My goodness, bamboozled so often. Clueless, slow of heart to believe. Boy, Lord's taking me through this text. The disciples do not do well in this scene, and things will only get worse. In Mark's gospel, they seem to have wool in their ears. Jesus' hints and warnings and even his miraculous deeds do not get through. It's like winking at the blind or whispering to the deaf. But praise God. At some point, and we don't know when it is, but at some point, the disciples' blind eyes and deaf ears are opened by the Spirit of the living God. And He has done that with us. And all that wrong thinking about truth and error and all that wrong acting with regard to compassion and love is somehow and in some way brought by God to a place of maturity in the life of believers. And I don't understand that. I know it doesn't come from me. And I know that when it comes, it comes only from Christ. And I'm so glad he's patient. I'm so glad he's patient. You know, at any one point he could say, guys, that's it. You've failed the lesson for the 1,057th time. But he's so patient and so loving and so kind. And when they're not compassionate and they tell the people to go away, he says the people are going to stay here. 
And when they say, let's rain down fire from heaven to consume them all, he says, guys, I'm going to turn you in to the apostles of love. You know, it's like the illustration that I heard about a certain tightrope walker publicized that he was going to walk across Niagara Falls. A large crowd gathered. He dusted his hands and feet with powdered chalk. He grasped both hands of the pole that he used for balance. He proceeded confidently across the rope. This is Niagara Falls. He not only went across, but also made a return trip. The crowd stood amazed and responded with cheers. The man proclaimed he would do it again without his pole. And he successfully again went over and back. And as he stepped off the rope, he turned to the crowd and asked how many thought he could make a third trip, this time with a wheelbarrow. Some responded with confidence and others with skepticism. He set off on his task. He completed it with the greatest of ease. He then inquired of the crowd as to whether they believed he could do the same thing with the wheelbarrow full of cement. This time the crowd responded with great confidence. Again, he performed his feat with unbelievable ease. And having completed these four trips successfully, he asked the spectators if they believed that he could wheel a human being across the dangerous expanse. The response was unanimous. He could do it. They believed. They believed. They saw it. Upon their reply, he turned to a gentleman and said, All right, my friend, let's go. Do we believe enough to go into the wheelbarrow? Even if it shatters our present worldview, which might need to be shattered because it's been so influenced by the world? Will it be enough for us to believe that God is going to meet our needs if all the life long that we live we're meeting other people's needs? See, I really don't have any problems with Christ meeting my needs if I'm all about meeting other people's needs because I know He's going to meet mine in the process. I tell you folks, this is a great text. Let's live it out. Let's pray together. Our Father, do we believe? Do we believe? Do we discern truth and error? Do we reach out with that delicate balance of compassion? Are we sucked into the pluralistic, relativistic, monistic world? Only seeing for the moment, only believing for the moment. Oh Lord, shatter our disbelief. Bring us into the wheelbarrow of your sovereign grace and carry us across on the rope hangs over the abyss. Lord, we need you. Give us this grace to meet the needs of others with love. Give us the wise discernment that we need to live out the truth and proclaim it with power and with conviction. May we do so because you will be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.